Hello, everyone. Welcome to the relaunch of the Free Reads Podcast. Here's something from the Urban Dictionary, the definition of pod fade. When a podcast begins putting out episodes more and more sporadically and at greater intervals. Typically begins with only one episode missed, but if a podcast isn't careful, it can compound. Sometimes as severe as one podcast every other month. Pod fade often leads to podcast death. Every podcaster has his own excuse for pod fade. Here's mine. When I let free reads start to slide, I had recorded pretty much everything I had ever written. I just didn't have anything new to offer. Checking back to the free reads website, I see that the last entry was almost exactly three years ago. Time enough for me to write and publish more stories, which I can now share with you. This first installment of Free Reads The Next Generation is a contemporary fantasy. Or is it perhaps horror? Longtime fans of Free Reads will recall that it was my policy to break stories into segments for ease of recording and downloading. I intend to return to that policy in upcoming episodes, but for now, let's just go for it, shall we? Happy Ending 2.0 first appeared in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in March of 2011. Speaking of firsts, the first sentence of Leo Tolstoy's classic Anna Karenina is, Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. But is there a way back for the unhappy partners to that blissful and innocent state of first love? And if there is a way back, would taking it necessarily lead to a happy ending? Happy Ending 2.0 On a good day, it is one of J.T.'s favorite drives, up I-93 into the stony heart of the White Mountains. But life hasn't been all that good lately, and it's 10.36 at night, so there's nothing to see. Hills, black against a black sky. Jill, asleep in the passenger seat, He's relieved he doesn't have to talk to her. Too much talking in the past few days, poking each other with pointed words. He eases into the right lane, slows the Volvo to get off the interstate. She stirs. What? Exit 32. She thinks about that. We're here. Almost. Through Lincoln, a couple of miles on the Kankamagas Highway, to the cabin on the flank of Big Coolidge Mountain. He's ready to stop. Long day. She made him leave right from court, so they wouldn't keep Cousin Howard up late. Call him, she says. The hands-free phone system comes standard with the S-40. J.T. says, call Howard Munts. 
The car connects to his cell, and they hear the ring over the stereo. Another ring. Eight rings. Cousin Howard doesn't have an answering machine. Hang up. He doesn't look at her. Not good. He's there, Jack, trying to convince herself. He is. She's the only one who calls him Jack. He has come to hate the name. Jack and Jill. When they first met, they had taken it as a sign that they were meant to be together. Funny how the things you love about a person at first become the things you despise at the end. Funny and sad. Now she says she doesn't like his ties, or his beef paprikash, or Philip Glass. Is this the end? He hopes not. She puts her seat up, peers out the window at the lights of Lincoln, New Hampshire. Chang Garden, Nordic Inn, Gypsy Cafe, Goodies Mobile, the Mill at Loon Shopping Center. J.T. wonders if she's thinking about that first time they'd come here. He is. A long time ago. They were different people then. Better? <laughs> Innocent, anyway. Skipped Friday classes at UNH to make a long winter weekend of it. Jill's Grandpa Munce had died of liver cancer that fall. His cabin would be empty. She knew where the key was hidden. Skiing and laughs and making love. She didn't call it fucking back then. Pizza and beer and more lovemaking. The cabin never really warmed up. A double sleeping bag in front of the fire was hot enough to melt all inhibitions. God, but she was beautiful. He would bury his face in her curly hair, feather his lips across hers, nuzzle the arch of her long neck as she bent over him. And then Cousin Howard barged in. Caught them doing it. Ruined everything. Next left, she says. I've been here before, he bristles when she gives him directions. Many times. Snaps the turn signal on, even though they are still a quarter of a mile away. Her creepy cousin Howard owns the cabin now. Jill's uncle bought out her side of the family after her dad died, and then gave it to his son. Of course, the whole family is supposedly still welcome to visit. Plenty of room in the old place. But since Howard has owned it, Jill and J.T. have always given it a pass. Now they need to get away. The air at home is thick with anger, sour with disappointment. So they are going back to the beginning, see if they can find themselves again. Off the Kangamagus, the road climbs steeply. The real estate near the bottom has changed over the years, cabins scraped to make room for pompous mansions that lounge on tiny lots. The northern forest has given way to tiered gardens and stone patios. Out-of-state money loves it here. Big ski area, a mile down the highway. Cousin Howard is from Rhode Island, owns a discount mattress store. Higher up, where the pavement ends, the road is gravel. Finally, the driveway, shaggy with fallen birch leaves. The house is dark. He said he'd be here. Her voice, very small. He's a jerk. Jill clicks out of her seatbelt. What if it's locked, he says. Grandpa always kept a spare key in the shed. Grandpa's been dead 18 years. 
High beams light her way to the front door. Jill twists the knob, gives the door a shake, turns into the headlight glare, and shrugs as if it's not her fault. He gives in to a small, mean-spirited moment of pleasure. Score one for J.T. Then he's disgusted with himself, worries that she is bringing out the worst in him. Starts the car, backs up to aim the headlights at the detached garage. The ghost of a building, roof sagging, gray clabbards warping in the car light. Bigger than a shed, smaller than a barn, older than dirt. A rusty latch holds double doors closed. She pries it loose, and the left-hand door shutters open. Slips inside, then back into the light, almost immediately, grinning, holding the key in both hands in front of her, as if it were a trophy. Score one for Jill. She opens the front door and disappears into the cabin without looking back. The floodlight at the peak of the roof comes on. Windows light up. J.T. pulls the keys from the ignition, decides to leave their bag. Wants to see what's going on first. This trip already feels like a disaster. Back in the fifties, the Munces had built a long, rustic mudroom to marry two small cabins into the sprawling hodgepodge at the top of Brookline Road. The floor plan is a confusion of nooks and dead ends. Can't get from the second floor on one side to the second floor on the other without going down, crossing over, and climbing up again. Screen door winds. J.T. steps into the parlor. Smells musty, as if the house hadn't drawn breath for a long time. Makes no sense. Cousin Howard has allergies. At least, he uses them as an excuse for his moods. He junked most of Grandpa's old furniture, taken the barnboard floors down to bare wood, remodeled the fusty kitchen, added a bathroom with a jacuzzi in the master bedroom. That's when J.T. and Jill stopped coming. Jill? A coffee table made from a slab of oak squats on a vintage Raya rug. Around it, a lodgepole pine couch and matching chairs with fabric so worn that dusky foam shows through. Scatter of table lights, pretending to be oil lamps, not doing a very good job of it. Bookshelves filled with... National Geographics and flimsy Reader's Digest hardcovers. Antique snowshoes crossed on a wall of dark pine planks with knots that watch like brown eyes. It's all wrong. Cousin Howard's taste in decor trends brutal. Burnished metal, unforgiving furniture, saturated monotones. Hadn't she said he'd had the walls bleached? Now J.T. insists. Jill! He strides across the parlor, down a hall, past a bunk room, a half-bath with a green toilet and a white sink with porcelain hot-and-cold water taps, a windowless room filled by a sagging brass bed. Pauses to shout up the dark staircase. Damn it, Jill! The cabin seethes with silence. He follows lights to the mudroom. A claw scrabbles at the back of his throat. He loosens his Hermes tie opens the top button of his shirt. He's had a recurring dream where he is trapped in some stranger's house, told it to Jill many times. Nobody's home, 
but he knows they're coming back soon. Running, he's stumbling, can't find a way out, bounces off walls, falls, wakes up sweating. But this mudroom isn't strange to him. Not at all. It's the way Grandpa Muntz left it, eighteen years gone. Okay, Jill! Grubby boots lined up under a row of hooks in the mudroom. You win! Hanging a red-checked flannel shirt next to a duck jacket next to a yellow slicker. So what's the fucking game? At the far end of the long skinny room, the kitchen makes him angry. Almond refrigerator with round shoulders and huge chrome door handles. Matching stove with dials like squinting alarm clocks. Scuffed fake tile linoleum. Each step carries him deeper into memory, further into regret. She's doing this. Why is she doing this? Then the big two-story living room. At the back, stairs to the balcony, dark windows opposite. At the front, the fieldstone fireplace. Wrought iron shovel, brush, and poker on the hearth, their handles like twisted rope. Hide-a-bed opened to the fire, tongue of a mattress sticking out, and the sleeping bag. He groans. Two sleeping bags, actually, zipped together. They had laughed at how clever that was, how clever they were to have found each other, Jack and Jill, up the hill. A sleeping bag has a thick green cotton cover. The collar is pulled back, showing the flannel liner printed with ducks in flight. Ducks with green heads. Mallards, she said. J.T. still can't tell a mallard from a penguin. Can't now. Couldn't then. Eighteen years gone. And that was another thing he loved about Jill. She knew the names of trees and birds and fish. And then she threw the top of the sleeping bag open and drummed her fingers on the ducks, mallards, and she was, oh, so very naked. And she said, Come here, Jack. So he stripped, all in a rush, popping a button off his shirt, and apologized because his feet were ice, but Jill just giggled and snugged her legs against his, and her thighs were warm, and between them was wet, and a flush was spreading above her breasts, and her cheeks burned as she rolled on top of him and squirmed and wriggled and rubbed, and he was ready, so ready that he felt his throat tighten, so that he couldn't say anything, only groan, but then she pressed a hand to his chest and said, Wait, Jack, wait. Let's stay like this. And he barely managed to say, Okay. And she said, Let's never go back. And again, a squeaky, Okay. And she kissed him. I mean, we have to go back. I've got a psych quiz on Monday, but let's stay like this forever. And he spread his fingers across her ass and pulled her down. And she said, Forever in our minds, Jack, our imaginations. And he wasn't imagining anything just then, because this beautiful girl, this wonderful Jill, who knew about ducks, was his, and he was hers, and they were young, and the future was someplace far away, not here, not now. And then they heard the door opening. Cousin Howard's raspy, Hello! 
When J.T. comes back to himself, he is running, stumbling, catching himself with a hand on the wall. This isn't his house. Get out! Mudroom, hall, parlor. He doesn't belong here. Screen door bangs shut like a gavel. Leaves crunch underfoot. He throws open the Volvo's door. Jill slumps in her seat, staring out the passenger window into the night. Where the fuck were you? He tumbles behind the wheel. I was worried. Let's go. Her shoulders hunched. He slams the door shut. Locks snap. The dome light does a slow fade. He has a glimpse of her breath fogging the window. What happened in there? Key in the ignition. Please, just drive, Jack. A hitch in her voice. Get me out of here. The engine snarls, then mutters discreetly. They descend in brittle silence until the wheels thump from gravel to pavement. He fills his lungs, feels like he's been wearing a shirt three sizes too small. Where are we going? I don't know. She reaches back, pulls the shoulder harness around her, clicks in. You decide. Something is still wrong. He sneaks a look. Her face glows in the green of the instrument panel. She is peering intently at the road ahead, as if trying to find their way. Her face is too smooth. Curly hair, full lips, a long, kissable neck. The years seem to have fallen away. The phone's beep startles him. The Volvo's robotic voice gives the number. Six zero three seven four five three five seven two. Calling. Cousin Howard's number. Jill brushes hair off her forehead. Shivers. Pick up, he says. Jack, where are you? The voice on the line shakes him. He swerves onto the shoulder, slams the Volvo into park, flicks the dome light back on. The woman next to him is way too young. A frown drags the corners of her sweet, sweet mouth down. This is impossible, but it's what he wants most in the world. Jack, says the voice. Who is this? But he knows. He has heard the voice sharpen over the course of their marriage, has felt its edge. Get back here, says his wife. What the hell do you think you're doing? I, I, I want to go home, he says. He can hear the rasp of her breathing on the line. Jack, there's someone here. A college kid. Yeah. He says his name is John. John Taylor Bennett. Okay. Don't call him Jack. Thinks it. Doesn't say it. Let her find out. What does he want? He says I should stay here with him. He says I promised? Is there someone with you? The Jill across from him reaches for his hand. She's the girl he lost. Yes. The speakers emit a hollow, forlorn sound like a stone falling into a well. This is wrong, Jack. He considers. Is it? His wife is crying. She's not me? The girl next to him gives him a shy smile. How can this be a mistake? This time he'll do it right. Yes, he says. Yes, she is. Breaks the connection. They pass the ski mansions at the foot of the road and screech onto the Kankamagas Highway. Soon they see Lincoln, New Hampshire's one traffic light. Even at midnight, it still cycles from green to red to green. Go to stop to go. While they wait for it to change for them, 
he studies her in the light of Goody's mobile. She's relaxed now, sure of herself, he thinks, and of him. He has made his decision. The trick is to get away with it. I didn't want to lose you, he says. I know. She slips her hand inside his suit jacket, presses it flat against his chest. We all make mistakes. The light is taking forever. The hand drifts upward. Nice tie, she says, pulls the knot just a little too tight against his throat. I like a man who can wear a tie. This is Jim Kelly. Thanks for listening to Happy Ending 2.0, which first appeared in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in March of 2011. I am releasing this Free Reads podcast under a Creative Commons license, specifically Attribution, Non-Commercial, Sharealike, 3.0, Unported. What does that mean in English? It means that you are free to share this podcast with anyone you feel like sharing it with. You can copy it, distribute it, or transmit it as you see fit. You can also remix it if such is your pleasure. My intention is that you may be interested in translating it to another language. You may do these under the following conditions. You must attribute the work to me. That's James Patrick Kelly. Jim to you. You may not use this work for commercial purposes. And if you do alter, transform, or build upon this work, you must distribute your work resulting from it under the same or similar license to this one. Thanks for listening. I am really back, and I have more stories on my hard drive ready to be podcast in the weeks to come. So check back soon to the Free Reads Podcast. <laughs>